today, everybody knows what today is. Today's the longest day of the year. Uh, 25 hours, you get an extra one today. So um, what are you going to do? Anybody going to do anything special with your extra hour? It's um, Chris? A massage. See, now that's good living, right? This is like, there's a, you know, I've heard me say this before, an Annie Dillard quote where she says, how you spend your days is how you spend your lives, right? How you spend your hours is how you spend your days. So that question is, it's an important question. What are you going to do with your extra hour today? Um, and, And we're talking about wisdom. This is like our second in a series on wisdom and, um, which seems to be, in many ways, a, a sort of missing ingredient oftentimes in the world today um, that I, I think we're not looking around seeing an abundance of wisdom. We have to kind of look hard to find it. But but wisdom to me, I think, is like it, it's seen in a sort of texture. Is my mic a little bit hot here? Am I, am I right? Okay. I feel like I'm... Um, maybe that's, you know, just... <laughs> It's that extra hour, right? I'm just a little more vibrant. Um, what are you going to do? Um, but wisdom is a, is a sort of energy, I think, in some ways. It's like a gracefulness of life. It's an abundance of life. It manifests itself in, in a joy, but also a sort of peaceful, non-anxious presence. And pursuing this ought to be... For all of us, like our kind of chief end, deep down, we should be going after it. We should seek after wisdom. We're told again and again through scripture that that it's more precious than gold, right? It's it's the thing that we um, should pursue as our chief end. And as we think about this life and we think about the, the sort of journey that we're all on, I think... Life is, in many ways, the potential of walking this path of wisdom to be an accumulation that doesn't cease until the very end of our days, that life becomes a journey of wisdom, or it can be. That's the invitation. And the reason that we pursue Jesus like we do is not just that this is the answer for salvation, but he's embodying for us the way to live that when we think of what wisdom looks like when it's lived out, Jesus becomes our model. And so it's not just a matter of looking at what he says or listening to his instructions, but like watching what he does and then acting in the same way. Peter tells us, follow in his steps, right? And, And it's such a great image of like trying to sort of walk as Jesus walks. So if Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, right, we we take that not just as as an opportunity for us um, to learn something new, but to actually embody that sort of practice. And as we watch Jesus, we see to just what lengths he goes. He tells us, no greater love has man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus does more than just teach that, right? He does that. And for us, as we're talking about wisdom, we're not trying to accumulate some, you know, 
greater knowledge base. We're, we're talking about how do we digest these things so that it actually manifests in our life, in our days, in our time. How do we live lives that are wise? And it is so much in our choices, but um, <laughs> oftentimes those choices, the wise choice isn't always the most obvious thing. Have you noticed this? Like, if only it was that simple, right? What am I going to do today? Well, just be wise today. And you're like, okay, but what is wisdom in a day-to-day life? If only there were like signposts along the way, but they're not, right? We, we end up having to utilize this skill of discernment. And discernment is something that we practice and we grow. And we talked about last week that it begins with a posture of humility. That the beginning of wisdom is to realize that all that we don't know, that for all of us, we're not the ones deciding the way it is, but instead are seeking to conform our life with a greater reality. And so we talked about last week, this verse that says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I probably didn't say enough on that last week. I, I probably should, should touch back on that because I was talking to a friend afterwards and he was kind of triggered by that. Fear of the Lord, right? And he's coming from a sort of background of like, you should be afraid of God, right? That, that kind of ominous thing. And I think sometimes fear of the Lord gets taken in the wrong way. But that fear of the Lord, I think, means much more a healthy respect, that there's a sobering when it comes to truth and the way things are. That reality isn't just simply the way we want it to be. And I think we all know this deep down. But I think, you know, you see more and more about this idea of like manifesting your reality. And don't get me wrong. I think there actually can be value in like what you put forth is what you tend to attract. I think there's truth to that, right? But ultimately, in the end, I think that we know that reality just isn't what we want it to be. That we can imagine a greater world and step into that, and like, but, but oftentimes things go desperately wrong in this world. That we get a diagnosis that we weren't expecting, or some sort of tragedy occurs, and we know that, that in this life, wisdom is more a matter of matching reality than making reality. Does that make sense? That we're living our life trying to bring ourselves into alignment with the way things are instead of just deciding or projecting the way we think it should be. The other side of this matching is a, a sort of reemergence that I see today, which again, I don't mean to categorize these things as bad things, but there's this sort of rise of stoicism. Have you read anything like that. There's um, quite a lot that's being said and discussed there, which is instead of just you can make your world, it's over here saying just accept the way things are, right? A just sort of blanket acceptance. Are you guys following me? It's kind of that, uh, the story of the, the man, the Chinese proverb of the man and the stallion. Have you heard this story before? Where he's got this He's got this racehorse and, you know, and everybody's going, gosh, you're so lucky, you're so fortunate to have this horse and the horse gets stolen. 
And everybody's neighbors come and they're like, oh, that's so, what a bummer. And he's like, well, what is good and what is bad, right? And then the horse ends up finding its way back and it brings all these other horses with it. And everybody's like, oh, you're so lucky. And he's like, well, what is good and what is bad, and then, right? And then his son's on the horse and falls off and breaks his leg. And they're like, oh, what a tragedy. Well, what is good? What is bad? But that, you know, the injury keeps him from having to go to war. And what is good and what is bad? Um, this idea of a sort of posture of acceptance, right? That there's a, a stoicism that, um, that says that the wise man just sort of accepts without judgment his life. There's truth to that, isn't there? Uh, that so much of life we, we cannot control and a, a sort of open-handed posture of acceptance is not a bad thing. But see, the wisdom that we're introduced to in Scripture is something different that it's saying that there is, instead of just a blanket acceptance, there, there's a trust that there's something going on here that's greater than us, but is unfolding by design. And the posture of humility allows us to enter in in obedience, trusting that a greater hand is at work. We live in a world where things go wrong, but ultimately we trust in the fact that the ultimate story is being told by someone who is setting things right. And so wisdom is this invitation to live life like that. Live life in accordance to a designer who is at work, who we trust knows more than we do. And that even when things are suggested to us that don't quite make sense, we then, in obedience step in and follow that calling, follow that shepherd's voice. This is the way of wisdom as it's presented in Scripture. And so today what I want to talk about is, is kind of a follow-up to last week. If, if humility and the fear of the Lord is the beginning, today I want to talk about teachability, how we bring our life into that place where it is aligned and congruent with what God is doing. And what we find in, in Proverbs, which is just a book chock full of wisdom, that's when we think of wisdom in the Bible, I think we tend to think of Proverbs. There are others. Job is a book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is a book of Proverbs. Um, Song of Solomon is, you know, poetry, but often attributed. There's a sort of wisdom to that book as well. But, but here in Proverbs chapter 9, we hear wisdom calling to us. And as I said last week, wisdom is, you know, throughout Proverbs is uh, presented as a feminine voice. And, um, and so if you'll read along, I'm just going to read the first six verses of this chapter. It says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. What a lovely invitation. Here you, you were reminded that, that wisdom is this banquet. It's this feast that we're invited into. It's been set for us, and it's there by invitation to all. What are the qualifications 
to wisdom? Do you have to be smart to get wisdom? Clearly here you don't. That it's an invitation even to the very simple to come inside. And this sounds simple enough, right? Like, oh, just pay attention, listen for the voice of wisdom and follow. But chapter 9, I think, gives us what, you know, we've talked about this idea of an inclusio in Scripture, that it's sort of bookended, and we find that at the end of the chapter, we also have another voice, also a feminine voice, and this one, unlike wisdom, is the voice of folly. And so let me read these verses from the end so we can see the sort of contrast that's here. Verse 13, it says, The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It sounds like you make a short film about that, right? Like this, you know, you walk into this stolen water and bread that, that turns to like corruption and death in your hands. It's such a dark image, right? But, but interesting to think about this contrast, these two voices being spoken to us. And as we think about living our lives with discernment, it really is a weighing of these two very different paths that are offered to us kind of at every moment. Are we walking into wisdom or are we walking into folly? And what we find here, and I think this is true, is that the voice of folly is louder. So if you're not exercising discernment, chances are folly is the voice you're going to hear. It's every single advertisement you come across, right? is loud and it's speaking to you some sort of shortcut to happiness, shortcut to wisdom, shortcut to pleasure or joy. Every good ad says, here's what you're missing and if you had it, you'd be happy and this is how you buy it, right? And you just get there like... A, B, C, like here's the simple solution. And you order that and then you wait in anticipation for that thing to come, right? But in the end of this accumulation, we know this already, that it leads to disappointment, that it never seems to give what it promises. That this loud thing that's blaring at us it is telling us really a, a shortcut to debt, a shortcut to, to pressure, a shortcut to um, disappointment. And the problem isn't the advertisers. They're not the ones who are creating this system, right? They, they do it because it works. That it's, it's a way of looking into the human psyche and to see part of the brokenness in all of this is in us. That we, the simple, if left to ourselves, tend to go the route of folly. It's like Taylor Swift said, <laughs> I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. Tale as old as time. Right? And, and it's true, though. She's, she's not wrong. I mean, she's 
found out how to brilliantly brand that and make a whole lot of money off of it. But, um, <laughs> but there is this brokenness in all of us, right? That um, when left to our own devices, we end up in crisis. And so this voice of folly ends up being just kind of nudging you in a certain direction. Discernment is work. It's pushing against something. And when Jesus presents the road of wisdom, he's going to say it's narrow and few follow it. Why? It's hard. It's hard to follow this road. So much easier to just sort of go with the flow. And the questioning that we need to do, the discernment, yes, it's out there, but honestly, it begins in here. By checking ourselves, second-guessing ourselves and our own motives. I love this quote by Chesterton where he says, A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And that this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of man that man does exert, assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The divine reason. And Chesterton is saying that, that wisdom is this way of trusting God, tr- trusting that truth and not trusting ourselves. I mean, you get where I'm going with that, right? The, the motives, the impulses, the things, the desires that just reach out and grab are things in us that need to be restrained. Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death." And this death that we see, this warning, what does that really look like? And I think sometimes we can tend to take the metaphor too literally, although, you know, if you, plenty of people do the foolish things that lead to actual death, unfortunately. But, um, but I think what it's getting at there, that the folly or this self-pursuit leads us not just to a place of disappointment, but really to a place of isolation and separation, That deadness throughout scripture is this like withdrawal from the life. It's a breaking that sin ultimately, this separation from God itself. It's this independence that makes us pull back from the thing that we desperately need to give us life, which is love. And love is hard work. Love is sacrificial. Love requires laying our lives down. And this way of wisdom is so entwined with this road of love. But left to our own devices, we pursue self. We pursue self-worship. We pursue idolatry. We pursue fame. We pursue power. And that these things in the end do a sort of damage to our soul. I've heard fame described as the ability to be loved by people that we don't have to love in return. Is that interesting? We crave that sort of attention. What if all these people just love me and I don't have to love them back? But the thing is, you see how that's creating this sort of gap or this separation from the thing that our hearts deeply long for. I like how Brene Brown says, we're like hardwired for connection. Right? We're hardwired for relationship. 
So much of the joy and the abundance of life is found in that place of intimacy, vulnerability, and connection with other people. And sin comes in, and our self-interest comes in and wrecks it. This way of folly is like a shortcut. Stolen waters are sweet. A shortcut to the thing that we think we want, right? And you go, this is... This is the whole thing behind like adultery or pornography or any of these things. It's a shortcut to pleasure. It's a, it's a way of tasting the fruits without paying for it. It's, it's a way of refusing to take responsibility. But what we come away with is something broken, something artificial, something that lacks the true life and depth. So the invitation here is an invitation to the things that our hearts so desperately want, but oftentimes aren't disciplined enough to go after and to chase. It takes work. It takes discipline. And it comes down to how we live each single, every single day. That life is this accumulation of these little choices, either wisdom or folly. And so as we think about our lives, we should think about it with that sort of scrutiny. When you get to the end of the day, you're like, should I floss my teeth? Do you want your teeth to fall out? Right? Like you, you think through in terms of these, like, where does this path lead? Does this lead to wisdom or does this lead to folly? I was reading recently, um, what's his name? Jim Clear? James Clear, Atomic Habits, this is a Raya book, um, and came across something that he wrote on inversion. And, and he was saying that it, it's this way of considering kind of the opposite road from where you think you want to travel. In other words, we, we tend to think of our lives in wisdom through this lens of where I want to get someday or what are the steps that, I'm gonna, that will, it'll take me to reach this goal, Right? But he's saying, what are the steps that will take you the other way? This is what inversion asks. In many ways, I feel like this is what the author of our chapter today is doing. We want to know what are the road, what are the steps to wisdom? And he's saying, well, think about the steps to folly. So some of you are probably thinking, I'd love to lose weight. What are the steps to losing weight? And he would say, what are the steps to gaining weight? What would you do if you wanted to gain weight? You're like, mm, I would probably not wake up early because I might feel too motivated if I did, so I need to sleep in, which means I probably need to stay up late the night before. It probably means anytime I'm hungry, I just reach for something easy and quick and eat that because that's going to make me feel bloated and then I'm not going to want to get off the couch. I probably shouldn't go outside because that'll involve too many steps. So I'm just going to sit on the couch and do nothing, right? That's inverted thinking. If you want to gain weight, that's the way to do it, right? And some of you are thinking, I want to lose weight. But when we look at how we behave, we're like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm actually going the other way. Here the author of Proverbs is saying, consider the way of folly, the way of avoiding responsibility, the way of taking what is not ours rightfully, finding a hack, finding a quick cheat to getting that pleasure. 
I read this quote this week from Jonathan Sachs. He's a, a rabbi who says this. He says, The sages said that whenever we see the word, the Hebrew word, vayehi, and it came to pass, it is always a prelude to tragedy. Leaders don't wait for things to come to pass. They say not vayehi, but yehi, let there be. That was the word with which God created the universe. It is also the word with which we create a meaningful life, one that leaves the world a little better for our presence. Isn't that interesting, that Hebrew word? And it came to pass. And what is he getting at there? He's saying when we approach our life with this sort of like, well, let's just see what happens, generally that leads to tragedy. But when we say, yehi, let there be, this is when we're stepping into something similar to God's creativity. This is where we have the opportunity to bring into this world beauty. This is where wisdom flourishes. And what is the key to this? I told you already, we would talk about day two on wisdom. What is the key? I think it's right in the middle of this chapter. The difference between those who are wise and those who like succumb to folly is in these verses here. And you're not going to like it. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. But this is in uh, verses 7 through 12. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Then he says those words that we talked about last week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. What's the key here? It's right there in the middle between these two, between wisdom and folly, this key. And it's how we respond to correction. And it's part of humility. Humility becomes the base. But how do we respond to rebuke? How do we respond when somebody says, ah, let me critique what you did? And if you're like me, the answer to that is like, ah, not well, right? How many of you like correction, right? It's, it's terrible, isn't it? Like we go, we're so like averse to it. But I think what Solomon is telling us here is that the wise people have acquired a taste for it. They want truth more than to be right. They don't want to be stuck in their biases or the way they see things. They want the truth at all costs. And again, like I said, it's an acquired taste. At first, it just sort of makes us squirm, doesn't it? And we get defensive and we blame back. And, you know, this is what I do at least. It's a way of like telling on yourself, (laughs) right? And none of us like to do that. None of us like to, to admit just maybe how sort of selfish we can be. I, I do this, I do spiritual direction for some people, um, And one of the things that you have to do as a director is go to a supervisor. And you go see a supervisor and you basically tell them 
moments where you were meeting with somebody and you couldn't like be genuinely present with them because of something within you that got in the way. For instance, one time I was meeting with somebody and they were saying that they had just come into this really large inheritance and it was creating all kinds of conflict for them. And I was saying, pass some of that conflict my way. <laughs> like, oh, that must be so hard, right? <laughs> and going like, oh, like you see this sort of pettiness in your own heart and to sit with somebody and be like, oh my gosh, what's the matter with me? But the truth is we all have that stuff, right? And all those things to, to have to, to go there with somebody else is going, no, 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 I don't want that. That's this like small version of myself, the one that, that wants to cut corners or that like wants what somebody else has or the, the, je- the jealous self, that, that small self, the selfish self. And folly is just going to go, yeah, go with that. Just stay right there in that lane. And you see Solomon saying that leads to death in the end. That all that jealousy and insecurity, all that self-centeredness ruins our ability to love. It just sort of imprisons us in this fortress. And so what we have to do is to resist that, to kind of paddle upstream against that current. It requires looking out for our better self or who we might become. And as we follow Jesus, we realize that's what he's asking us to do is to become more and more like him, to love more and more sacrificially, to die more and more to those selfish ambitions, instead to let his love flourish in us and to be passed on out of us into others. I tend to avoid conflict and I tend to withdraw. And I think it's easy to sort of rationalize this behavior as something sort of noble when really in the end it it all sort of imprisons me. I can tend to avoid conflict by not speaking truth and constantly changing what I'm saying only to find like deep inside that I'm not living in that place of integrity. So instead, what I'll choose to do is just avoid other people that create conflict, and I'll just kind of ghost people and separate, right? These, these behaviors are the way that self protects itself, the way that folly flourishes. But the way to wisdom is this embracing of a teachability. There's a wonderful little Ted Lasso moment where he's standing there with Nate, if you've seen this show, and Nate is so angry, and Ted's saying, what is it? What's wrong? And then he says this line, what do I have to learn? Help me learn. And I think that for all of us, if we're thinking about wisdom, it's this posture of humility, but then it's this pursuit. What do I have to learn here? to go after that, to walk in the way of insight. This is the invitation. And what happens as we do is something really deep, and we're going to talk about this next week, 
that this way isn't just about surrendering a sort of will or living in this posture of humility, but it's a shaping of our soul into something bigger than ourselves. That as we walk in this way, we grow and we transform. And I think about this for a church, that we so desire to be a community that is an influence of light and good in the world, that people will be drawn to the beauty and the hope that is filling our hearts. But it requires an open-handed posture of humility and then a leaning in in a way that we're teachable. When we find that thing in us trying to keep us small, we go after that thing. You know what I'm talking about? We pursue it. Next week, we're going to talk about transformation. And this is the deal, that as we're following in these steps, if we're following this path of wisdom, we're being shaped in a way that we can't just shape ourselves. This isn't just about discipline. This isn't just about doing the right thing and not the wrong thing. It is about following the way and the work of the master who is at work. The beginning of wisdom is this fear of the Lord, this respect, but what we find is that this Lord is the designer. As Paul says, you are his masterpiece created for good works. That it's more than just being in this place of flourishing, but it's your life being a demonstration of God's heart. I wanted to close with a a quote, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. And I apologize, we've gone a little bit long today, but as we go to this, it's this reminder that Jesus isn't just the one who has gone before us. He is the one who continues to shape us and guide us and lead us forward that we might become this demonstration of his goodness to the world. This from Lewis in God in the Dock. He says, the idea of reaching a good life without Christ is based on a double error. Firstly, we cannot do it. And secondly, in setting up a good life as our final goal, we've missed the very point of our existence. Morality is a mountain which we cannot climb by our own efforts. And if we could, we should only perish in the ice and unbreathable air of the summit, lacking those wings with, 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 with which the rest of the journey has to be accomplished. For it is from there that the real ascent begins. The ropes and axes are done away. And the rest is a matter of flying. Some questions for you to ponder, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. Questions to reflect. But question one, how do I respond to correction? How open am I to hearing critique or instruction? How do I respond defensively? Number two, what things do I do to resist growth? Where do I sabotage my pursuit of wisdom? How do I choose consciously or unconsciously the path of folly? And number three, how am I being invited into a larger story of intimacy and compassion? How can I respond with vulnerability and humility instead of avoidance or self-protection?